Before we turn to the sermon passage, I'd like to just give you a, a brief update on all that's happened with our family and the ministry up at the Capitol over the last year and a half. It's been a year and a half since I've been with you, so it's really good to be back. I was uh, recalled by the Navy to active duty early last year and was sent to the Middle East where I served as the group chaplain for Special Operations Command in Central Asia. So it was, uh, uh, I was gone most all of the year last year. It was a good deployment, lots of great opportunities to share the gospel and encourage and strengthen our service members in a specifically challenging community of special operations. I was most of the time in Qatar, which is kind of their forward operating headquarters where they come into the region and then go out throughout the rest of Central Asia to do what they do best. And uh, among one of the most special moments during that time was I was able to baptize some of our service members at Bethany beyond the Jordan, which is where tradition says Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. So that was a bucket list item, you might say, something very special we were able to join together as members of Christ to do while we were there. Surprisingly, eight days before I deployed, I found out Susanna was pregnant with our fourth baby, which was shocking. We weren't expecting that. And she was superwoman throughout the entire last year, pregnant, alone, homeschooling the older boys, caring for our toddler at the same time, managing the household and doing all that was required of her. So she was really the one who bore the heavy load, managing stuff here on the home front. Thankfully, by God's grace, I got home 11 days before the baby was born, and that was an answer to many prayers, and I thank you for your prayers throughout the year last year. And so I just uh, got back into the Capitol in early January as Capitol Minister with Ministry of State, and in that time, while I was deployed, you know, a major election took place, and it was one of the largest turnovers in the Florida House and Senate in its history. So I got back to a lot of new faces and people who had changed offices. And so it's been a a lot of fun over the last couple months reconnecting with folks and building new relationships, especially on the legislative side of the House as they've been in session now since early March. So they'll continue in session until the end of May. And uh, then I'll shift my focus from the legislative branch of the government to the executive branch and begin to reach out to their almost 40 executive agencies and offices to begin to build relationships among the executive branch as well. Uh, I want to say thank you again to your church and congregation, not just for the financial support that you give to the ministry, but for your continued prayer support. We could not have made it throughout the last year without the prayers of God's people. And so I don't want to neglect to thank you and give praise to God for all that he's done through your prayers to get me home safely and to begin ministry anew in the capital. Uh, One thing I'd ask for your continued prayers for is I'm looking to expand the ministry. It's more than one man can do. And so thankfully, this summer, the first kind of step in that is I've been able to uh, recruit and bring on a summer intern who's currently studying down at Reformation Bible College in Central Florida, and he'll be with me throughout the summer to kind of learn the ropes of what we do at ministry up at the Capitol and then begin to kind of get his feet wet as he Uh, engages in building relationships and sharing the gospel there. So please pray for him. His name is Grant Payne. Some of you may know his family. They're local to Tallahassee and have been here for many years. So thank you again for your prayers and support, and I look forward to continuing to share with you all the cool stuff that God is doing in the Capitol. Let's now turn to our passage for the sermon this evening, which comes from the prophet Micah. Micah. 
one last thing I want to mention before we read the passage. I do have a sign-up sheet in the back narthex there. If you're interested in receiving the updates, I send out quarterly, little PDF version with some pictures and stories about what's going on in the Capitol. Please sign up by email back there. And then I have some little trifold brochures you're welcome to take. If you have somebody who works in the state government in any capacity, not just an elected official, take one, share it with them, let them know who I am if they haven't met me already. And that would be a big help to me and also a help to you to let you know exactly kind of what's going on in the Capitol there. Micah chapter 7, uh, verses 18 through 20. This is God's holy word. Micah writes, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we ask for you to illumine our minds and our hearts that our souls would not be distracted by the cares of this world in this hour, but that you would lift us up into heavenly places that our minds would be alert to the truth that is found in your word that we might rejoice in the salvation which we have in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The Four Tops were a famous R&B group from the 60s and 70s who released many well-known hits. Maybe you'll recognize a few of these. Baby, I Need Your Lovin', I Can't Help Myself, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch, It's the Same Old Song, Reach Out, I'll be there, standing in the shadows of love, or Bernadette. Those were among their greatest hits. But in 1972, they released another hit called Ain't No Woman Like the One I've Got. It peaked at number four on the Billboard Hot 100, and the opening lyrics go like this. Ain't no woman like the one I've got. Every day the sun comes up around her. She can make the birds sing harmony. Every drop of rain is glad it found her. Heaven must have made her just for me. When she smiles so warm and tender, a sight for sore eyes to see. My wife Susanna loves when I sing that song to her. (laughs) But it's a song about the uniqueness of this one woman. Who is a woman like her? And the answer is there's none. It's a great love song. But what we see at the end of Micah is far better than a great love song about the uniqueness of the woman you love. It's a description of a unique, forgiving, and loving God like no other. And that's the central idea that Micah wants to get across to us tonight. There is no God like ours who is so merciful and so kind, so loving and so compassionate, so faithful, and so true. And so I want us to consider two questions that we'll answer tonight. And the first is this What is it like to be forgiven by God? 
Micah will give us four descriptions of what that is like. The second question is, what is it like to be loved by God? And Micah is going to give four descriptions of what it's like to be loved by God. What is it like to be forgiven by God? And what is it like to be loved by God? Now, before we dig into those questions, we need to do a little bit of context work to make sure we understand how our passage fits into Micah's book overall. So we learn from chapter 1, verse 1, a little bit about Micah. He was a prophet. And when we understand the word prophet, the Hebrew word means to call or to proclaim. And a prophet was one whose responsibility was to speak God's word to the people. Now, when we think about a prophet, most often what we think about is someone who's telling the future. And prophets certainly did that, but that was not primarily what they were telling God's people. They were rather a forth teller rather than a foreteller of the future primarily. They called people to repentance and covenant loyalty to God. That was their primary role as they spoke God's word to the people. Now, our prophet tonight, Micah, Micah is actually a nickname for a shorter name, Micaiah, which is a question. It means, who is like Yahweh? That's an interesting question to ask, and that should tuck in your back pocket because we're going to run into that question later on tonight. We know that he is from a little town called Moresheth in the southwest of Jerusalem, to the southwest of Jerusalem. It was between the coastal plains to the west and the hill country to the east. And he tells us that he served during the days of Yotam, Hahaz, and Hezekiah, who are kings of Judah. That places him between 750 and 700 B.C. So we're 700 years plus before Jesus. And he's riding primarily to Judah and Samaria, that is, the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. Now, Micah's book is somewhat difficult to outline because it's a collection of Micah's prophecy from throughout his ministry, and it's not arranged chronologically. So chapter 1 is not necessarily his first prophecies, and chapter 7 are not necessarily his final prophecies. Rather, his prophecies are arranged thematically throughout the book rather than chronologically. And so... One simple way to outline the book is to note that what Micah does is the two primary themes that he vacillates between are judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. So chapters 1 through 3 are primarily focused around the theme of judgment as Micah pronounces judgment against Judah and Samaria for their idolatry and against their leaders who he refers to as oppressors and unjust rulers and prophets who deceive the people. Then he swings from judgment in chapters 1 through 3, and chapters 4 through 5, he swings over to hope, and he describes hope in the new creation, hope in the rescue of the godly, and hope in the coming Messiah. After those chapters, he swings back to judgment in chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, and judgment against Israel as a whole. And actually in this section, he uses legal language as God sues Israel for their covenant disloyalty. Profound language that happens there in Micah. And then he returns, thankfully, at the end of his book, (coughs) excuse me, to hope and hope in Yahweh's salvation. 
That's where we find our passage at the very end of the entire book, at the very end of this section on hope. And he lifts us up with these three verses to hope in Yahweh's salvation. So that's a little bit of context works before we start to unpack the first question. So here's our first question. Let's start to unpack it. What is it like to be forgiven by God? Look at verse 18 and 19 with me. Who is a God like you? There's that question. That's Micah's name, basically. He ends his book by asking the question of his name. Who is a God like Yahweh? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one is a God like Yahweh. And he gives four phrases in the following verses to describe forgiveness. And as we see these phrases and the descriptions of God's forgiveness, it ought to cause you to see Jesus in them. So keep him in the forefront of your mind. The first phrase that he uses to describe what it's like to be forgiven by God is in verse 18. He asks the question, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity? Now the verb here, to pardon, it actually means to bear And it's used most often in the Old Testament to describe an armor bearer. An armor bearer is someone who carries the weapons and armor of his master into battle. It's someone who bears that heavy load upon himself. Now what does God bear? What does he pardon? He bears or pardons our iniquity. That is our injustices, those things which we have done which are unjust It's why the author of Hebrews can say this about Jesus. Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many. It's why Peter writes in his first letter, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity? Secondly, he says in verse 18, who is a God like you passing over transgression? Now, hang on for a second here because the translators are trying to help you cue in to what Micah is doing with the language he uses in the original Hebrew. The verb passing over means to overlook something. And this verb is used twice in an Old Testament story. You might think of it. The Passover in Exodus 12. So for example, in Exodus 12, verse 12, Moses writes that Yahweh will pass over or pass through the land. And then a few verses later in verse 23, he says Yahweh will pass through or pass over the land of Egypt to strike the Egyptians. It's the tenth plague as the Israelites are commanded to take the blood of a lamb and slay the lamb and put the blood over their doorposts. And as the angel of the Lord comes through to take the firstborn, if he sees the blood of the lamb, he will pass over that house. That's not the only cue to point us back to what Exodus tells us about the Passover. What does God pass over? In verse 18, he passes over transgression. The Hebrew word is pasha, which sounds almost exactly like the Hebrew word for the Passover, which is pasach. So pasha, pasach, he passes over, Passover. Micah's trying to draw us back 
to an Old Testament passage about God's character and his nature, what he is like. Who is a God like you who passes over transgression? It means literally rebellion. Micah uses this word six times throughout his letter. He uses it to describe Jacob and Israel a few times. He uses it in the language in chapter 6 where Israel is being sued by God when he asks this question, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, for my rebellion? Who is a God like you who passes over transgression? This exact language is actually used by Solomon in Proverbs chapter 19 verse 11 where he says, It is a glory to overlook a transgression. Have you ever done that before? You've overlooked a transgression which someone has committed against you? Or maybe somebody's done that for you before? You've sinned against someone and it was a glory that they overlooked your transgression? That's what God is like. That's what it's like to be forgiven by God, to have your transgressions overlooked. He pardons our iniquity. He passes over our transgression. Thirdly, in verse 19, the second phrase, Micah says, He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Now again, the translators are trying to help us a little bit. Micah's calling to mind another Old Testament passage from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Whereas God curses the serpent for leading Adam and Eve into sin, he says there's one coming, a seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent's seed, and he will bruise his heel. It's the first gospel presentation, Genesis chapter 3.15. God will tread our iniquities underfoot. That points us straight to Jesus. And notice that Micah says, He will do it. There's certainty in Micah as he speaks. He's not doubting whether or not that will happen. He knows what it's like to be forgiven by God. He knows that the one who has been promised to come will come. And he will crush Satan's head. Fourthly, in verse 19, the last phrase, Micah writes, You will cast all our sins... Into the depths of the sea. Now, to the Hebrews, who were not a seagoing peoples, the sea was a place of untamable chaos. And so the fact that our sins should be thrown there means that they are not coming back. One day, out at sea on one of my ships, we were far out in the midst of the ocean. And I was taking a picture of the horizon as the sun was setting. And an old, salty, crusty senior chief came walking up behind me and said, Chaps, I don't think you should be that close to the edge of the ship with your phone like that. And he told me a story about a young sailor who was kind of doing the same thing, taking a picture with his cell phone. And the ship hit a wave and his cell phone went over the edge and down into the drink. And, of course, the senior chief loved that and started laughing about the sailor losing his phone. And the sailor's like, but you don't understand my entire life was on that cell phone. All of my contacts, all of my emails, everything that I had was on that cell phone. That cell phone was not coming back. It had been thrown into the depths of the sea. 
Now, this language also calls to mind, hopefully, some more Old Testament passages, and Micah means that to happen on purpose. This exact language of something being cast into the depths of the sea is used twice in the Old Testament to refer to a specific story, and it's the story of the Exodus. As the children of Israel are fleeing Egypt, the Red Sea has been parted, and they're going across on dry land, and they make it out on the other side, as Pharaoh's army is pursuing them, and Pharaoh's army goes down into the depths of the sea, and as the final group of Israelites make it up onto dry land, it says that the Lord cast Pharaoh's army into the depths of the sea. It should remind you of the prophet which immediately precedes Micah, which is the prophet Jonah, and you'll remember his story well. God tells him to go to Nineveh to preach the word and call them to repentance. And he says, no, I'm not doing that. So he begins to run. And he gets on a ship. And he's trying to go as far away from Nineveh as he can. And God sends a storm. And all the sailors on the ship know somebody's done something to send the storm upon us. Who is it? And so Jonah fesses up and he says, it's me. I'm the one. I'm running from God. And instead of telling them to turn the ship around and head back in the other direction, which is probably what he ought to have done, instead, he says, how can I get even further away from God so that I don't have to go preach to the Ninevites? He says, here, throw me into the sea. That wasn't something holy or repentant that Jonah was doing when he told them to do that. He was trying to keep going further, further into the depths of the chaos of the sea. And the sailors grabbed Jonah and they cast him into the depths of of the sea. When I was a teenager, we lived over on the Georgia coast. And we lived near the submarine base there. My father was in the Navy as well. And the river that came in from the coast was a tidal river. So the submarines would come in during high tide and leave during high tide. But at low tide, they weren't going anywhere. But that river was called the Crooked River. And my brother and I would often go down to the Crooked River to go fishing on the weekends. And sometimes the fish weren't biting. So you've been fishing before and the fish aren't biting. So what would we do? We'd find rocks and we'd start skipping them across the top of the water, right? See how many skips we could get. But sometimes we'd find a really big rock. And it'd take both of us to pick up the big rock and we'd swing it. And we'd throw it. And you know that sound that it makes? Kaboosh! The big rock goes down into the water. That's the sound that you should have in mind when Micah says your sins will be cast into the depths of the sea. That's what it's like to be forgiven by God. Now, if we think too little of our sin, this passage doesn't really mean a whole lot. If your sin's not really a big deal, if you're a pretty good person, your sin's not that, not that bad then this passage isn't going to have much to say to you. But the fact is we have committed iniquity. We have transgressed and rebelled against God's law. We have sinned. Micah tries to use three different words to get across to us how much we have violated God's holiness. There's a passage from the Gospel of Luke, from the story of Jesus, that helps us really grasp what it is like to be forgiven by God. 
one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What is it like to be forgiven by God? He pardons iniquity. He passes over transgression. He casts our sin into the depths of the sea treads our iniquities underfoot. Now think of a particularly heinous sin that you have committed in your lifetime. For those of you who put your faith and trust in Jesus, that sin is forgiven. It's been cast into the depths of the sea. And that's what Micah says in verse 18, that the forgiveness of God, the passing over of iniquity, is for the remnant of his inheritance, those who trust in him. And he refers to you as an inheritance, something that he looks forward to, that he longs for, that he cherishes. And that's how God sees you. Now, it's an incredible thing to be forgiven by God. Yet it is quite another thing to be both forgiven and loved by him. So let's ask our second question. What is it like to be loved 
by God. Now, just like Micah gave us four descriptions of God's forgiveness, he will give us four descriptions of what it's like to be loved by God. Look again at verse 18. First, he says that God does not retain his anger forever. The Hebrew word for anger is a great word. It's actually literally the word nostril. So kids, if you get mad at your brothers or sisters, you can say, I'm really nostril at you right now. The idea is it's a picture, right? The Hebrew often does this. It's a picture word. When you get mad, right, the air blows out of your nose. Or if you've seen a cartoon and somebody's really mad, there's like steam coming out of their nose, right? That's the picture that the Hebrew word's getting across, right? God does not retain his anger forever. We have to ask the question, why is he angry? And the answer is because of our sin. But God's anger is not like our anger, which is so tainted by sin. Our anger is so unpredictable. We get angry for the wrong reasons. We get angry at the wrong people. We get angry in the wrong way. We get angry and we sin. But God's anger is not like that. His anger is justified. His anger is holy. And even though his anger at our sin is justified, and even though his anger at our sin is holy, he does not hold on to his anger forever. The word retain that the ESV uses to translate the Hebrew word here, Micah uses in the previous chapter as he describes what labor pains do to a woman. They seize her. And hold on. But that's not what God does. He does not seize or hold on to his anger. He does not hold a grudge. One woman told me in a counseling session one time about the unpredictability of her mother's anger. That's a story she's told me as a teenager. She had done something to disobey her mother. Her mother found out that she had disobeyed her and said, I'll get you for disobeying me, but I'm not going to do it right now. So days passed. And one day, this teenage girl was walking through the house. The mother walked by and backhanded her across the face, unexpectedly, unpredictably. And she said, I told you I was going to get you. That's not what God's anger is like. God does not retain his anger forever. In fact, Scripture is quick to say over and over and over again this phrase, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's what it's like to be loved by God. He does not retain his anger forever. Secondly, in verse 18, Micah says, He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. The word delight means to take pleasure in, to find joy in. God delights and takes pleasure in steadfast love. The Hebrew word there behind steadfast love is one word. It's chesed. It uses one of those great Hebrew guttural Sounds, if you're not saying it right, you should be hawking a loogie as you say it, right? Steadfast love, it means covenant love. 
it should draw to mind another Old Testament story because Micah will use this word again in verse 20 as he talks about God's chesed love to Abraham. He uses it also in chapter 6 in this famous verse from Micah and he says, What does the Lord require of you but that you walk humbly, love justice, and love chesed, that you love love. And this chesed should draw us back, for example, to this story as God enters into a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. God has made a promise to Abram and says, you will be a great blessing to all the nations. You will have a child. And Abram says, how will I know your promise is true? And this is what Yahweh says. Yahweh said to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and he cut them in half and he laid them each half over against the other. Now in the ancient Near East, as someone was reading this, they would understand immediately what was going on there. But we're so far removed from that that this doesn't really make a lot of sense to us when we hear this. What's he doing? He's taking these animals and cutting them in half and lining them up. What's going on here? God is cutting a covenant with Abraham to use the language. And what would happen when a king would come into a covenant with a lesser vassal of some sort? They would come to an agreement of terms. The king would lay out a covenant and he said, if you obey me, here are the blessings. If you disobey me, here are the curses. They'd walk together through this line of animals saying, if you violate the terms of our covenant, may this happen to you. And here's what happens. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. That's Yahweh, a theophany, right? Appearing as smoke and flame, which he does repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. And he passes alone through the midst of the animals. Abraham doesn't pass through the midst with him. So what's happening? God's saying, here, Abraham, stand over here, watch this. I'm going to go through the midst of the animals so that if either one of us violates the covenant, may this be done to me. That's Jesus. We violated the covenant. And what happened to those animals has happened to our Savior. He has borne the weight of our sin. That's what it's like to be loved by God. That's chesed. He delights in steadfast love. In verse 19, Micah continues that Yahweh will again have compassion on us. That's the third phrase he uses to describe what it's like to be loved by God. He will again have compassion on us. Now, I would submit to you that the key word in this phrase is not compassion. It's again. He will again. And again, and again, and again, have compassion on you. In Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes to Jesus and he says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times again and again. And again, and again, God will have compassion 
on us. That's what it's like to be loved by God. Fourthly, in verse 20, Micah says, You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Note the change in person from speaking of God in the third person back to speaking to him in the second person. This is really a prayer. Micah starts off by saying, Who is a God like you? who passes over our transgression, who pardons our iniquity. Then he talks to us and he says, He does not retain his anger forever. He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And then he turns back to God and he says, You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Faithfulness and steadfast love to Jacob and Abraham. These are code words speaking of those who trust in Yahweh, the remnant of his inheritance, as Micah says in verse 18. And he says, as you have sworn. He knows that God is faithful to his word. One of the most famous passages from the prophet Micah comes from chapter 5, and you'll recognize this. It's quoted by the scribes as the wise men come to King Herod. They say, tell us, where will the Messiah be born? We're here to worship him. We've seen his star, and we've come here to worship him. Where should we go? So Herod calls all the scribes together. He says, tell us, where is the Messiah to be born? And this is what they quote. But you... O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord." in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah tells us, as he vacillates from judgment to hope, in this section on hope, that God will bring about the Messiah. He will be born in Bethlehem. And just as he promised to the fathers of old, it came true. He was faithful to his promise. He was faithful to his word. This prophecy plays off of Genesis 3.15, the very first promise he gives. I'm sending someone to forgive your sins who will have steadfast love. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And just as he promised, so it is done. What is it like to be loved by God? His promises are not like our promises. We make promises and we break promises. We make promises we don't mean. We're not faithful to our own words, to ourselves, to others. God's promises are not like that. He is faithful to his word. One of Jesus' most famous parables describes what it's like to be loved by God. And Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. 
He divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread that I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. That's what it's like to be loved by God. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you for this passage, Lord, in which you remind us of what it is like for those who trust in you for the forgiveness of sins, what it is like to be forgiven by you, what it is like to be loved by you, what it is like to be a son or daughter of the king, what Christ has done on our behalf by casting our sins into the depths of the sea. Lord, we know that it is not by our own hands that we are forgiven. It is not by our own holiness that we are right before you. It is because of the blood of Christ, the work of our risen Savior, that we can come before you in prayer and rejoice in this passage. Who is a God like you? There is no one. Thank you, Lord, for your great love, for your great compassion, and your steadfast love, which endures forever. Through Christ we pray. Amen.